Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Good evening, everybody. Male people, female people, non-binary people... Alien people with two hearts and indeterminate gender. (laughs) Yes, there are going to be a lot of those jokes tonight. However, before we get there, we do have uh, two speakers tonight, one of whom is not going to be talking about feminism, as far as I know. And that person is somebody that we know very well, because he's a a regular at these events. He's going to be reading a little bit from the, the novel The Genes of Isis, and also from that interesting-sounding Chinese story that you read the prologue of for us at the open mic earlier this year. Can we have a warm welcome, please, for Mr. Justin Newland? Thank you very much. We'll see how this goes. Uh, yeah, this first reading, I'm going to do two readings. first is from this novel, The Genes of Isis. Uh, this is a pre-apocalyptic novel. I can never understand why people are so keen on post-apocalyptic. Reason being, you don't get to write about the apocalypse. I mean, why would you not want to write about an apocalypse? So here's, here's some mootings. Uh, so this is quite a way through the novel, um, near the apocalypse, in fact. <laughs> and it's entitled The Facing. Uh, Akasha is the, uh, the heroine. Here we go. Akasha's belly hurt. The spasms shot through her, then faded. With Shamira's help, she waddled along behind Philo. The tower stood implacably ahead. From an enormous circular base, it spiralled into the sky, getting narrower as it got higher like a giant spindle. The apex was barely visible amidst the swirling mists and low cloud. In the darkening gloom, the hundreds of people who had taken shelter in the tower had lit glow lamps that cast eerie shadows as they moved about in front of the window openings. Obsidian clouds scudded in from the east, the horizon seared by constant flashes of lightning. In the distance, a tornado whirled its mayhem. This one seemed more menacing than the others she'd seen. She bit down on her fear. The wind ground and the rain spat in her face. She wiped the moisture away like so many tears for a dying epoch. A moment later she was soaked again. There was no shelter. All around people were inebriated, swimming in the ecstasy and the exasperation of the apocalypse. It had a dull, parlous sound this end of days, a cacophony of breaking strings, snapping branches and creaking doors. With frantic gestures, Philo pushed the people ahead of him out of the way. The way he's blocked again, his voice was hard as flint. They were surrounded by scores of refugees, as well as drifters, rabble-rousers and lost souls, all heading for the last place of possible sanctuary for many leagues around. The Tower of Babylon. Oh, she was so tired. A baby was feeling the frustrations, an unwilling participant in a static crowd, so near and yet so far from her destination. Tross stood behind her. She felt guilty over his actions. I'll never forget your sacrifice, she told him. Nor will I, he murmured disconsolately. 
Bats flitted through the mists. Dogs brayed at an invisible moon. A cock crowed and then another answered. Birds squawked cries of alarm. And cats screeched like demons. An owl cried out overhead. Hordes of frightened, violent people worshipped at the altar of an atrophied old epoch. None of them had glow lamps. The tenebrous night was closing in on them, and with it the storm of the millennium. Hemmed in, her breath shallow, Akasha was suffocating. She wanted to scream. Rain hissed out of the sky. She was drowning in an ocean of fear. Across the way, a turbulent wind gusted around the turret, making an eerie whistling sound. Locked in a weird embrace with the agents of death, they were all waiting for the apocalypse to break over their heads. We need to get over there, Philo shouted, pointing at the tower, now less than a stone's throw from where they stood, hemmed in by the crowd. For a moment there was a pause, a hiatus in the chaos. The crowd seemed to sense it too and quietened. Then a moment later it was gone as if it never existed and people were jostling, shouting and fighting with each other all over again. It happened again. There was a note, a voice, singing. No, it couldn't be. In this morass? The crowd surged behind her and she stumbled. That brought on another spasm. The child was awake, moving around inside her. Tross and Shamira grabbed an elbow each and hauled her upright. Cloaked in the maelstrom, there was that singing again. Sweet sounds drifted in the air, blown this way and that by the gusting wind and slanting rain. People backed away and Akasha stepped into a clear open space. The singing originated from near the corner of the tower. The noise and the hubbub subsided. A small gap appeared and through the parting crowd walked a man holding a bright lantern out in front of him. It was Rokul. His chest rose and fell as he sang. As if in response to a prearranged signal, the crowd parted to let him through. A wonderful paean rose up out of the maelstrom. Shamira and Dross joined the singing. Slowly the crowd joined in with the singers and the joy of their voices extinguished the fear in their eyes. Amidst the rain, the drinks, the despair and the hopelessness, people raised their voices in the words of the hymn, Incense to the Source. Those in the tower hang out of the windows and sang into the rain. This unexpected transformation banished Akasha's pangs of doubt In the midst of a spiritual vacuum, one man had restored her faith in humanity. Faced with an ugly apocalypse, she was dimly aware of witnessing something divine. She was not alone. That night in Babylon, all were equal in the eyes of men. They always were in the eyes of the source. A belligerent gust of wind snuffed out the light in Rokor's lantern. This seemed to be an omen because... He stopped singing and turned to leave. For a dreadful moment, Akasha thought he was stepping out alone in the tempest to meet his maker, as calmly as if he was going to attend to his beloved gardens. Rokor's transformative singing had already moved to Polus, the king, who insisted they found a space for him in the already overcrowded town. Such a small act of compassion had large repercussions, because with her contractions increasing, Akasha's way to the natal chamber was clear, thanks to Roko. Philo and Shamira helped her to the entrance of the chamber, round the back of the town. Philo cupped his hands and shouted, Trust, there's room for you now. You can have Callisto's place. Then he seemed to realise how grossly insensitive his remark was, because he immediately said, Trust, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that. 
I didn't take it like that, Tross said, magnanimous as ever. Besides, I would be honoured to take my daughter's place. Good, Shamira said with evident relief. That's agreed. Now let's see this natal chamber. Philo lifted the trap door. Down a score of steps at the base of the stairwell, another door awaited them. Akasha was more than relieved to reach this point. Behind that door lay salvation and safety. Philo pushed it open. Inside the air smelt dank, thick like resin. He scuttled around the perimeter, lighting the lamps on the walls, filling the chamber with a welcome glow. Shamira assessed the chamber. It had a domed ceiling. Like a tower, it was oval-shaped. Occupying about one-third of the available space was sleeping materials, birthing equipment, a plentiful supply of water, and various paraphernalia for their survival of the flood, during the glo um, including glow lamps and candles. The chamber would easily be large enough to accommodate Tross if the other two-thirds of the room weren't crammed with racks of shelving and scrolls. What on earth are they doing here, she demanded. Kasha was already squatting on the birthing stool, grunting in between gasps of breath. It was the will of care, the high priest, Philo stammered, his fists clenched in frustration. He persuaded the king to let him store the temple's archives down here. What could I do but comply? At first there were only a few, then he, he asked for more, then another lot, then another lot, and then it's come to this. He waved his arm at the shelves. Care again, Tross said. That man is a blight on the face of humanity. Philo, tell me, Shamir assists, insisted, what is written on the scrolls? I don't know, Philo said. The high priest told the king they contained everything we ever held sacred in Babylon. Let's find out what's so sacred, Shamira pulled out a scroll. Here, read this. Fear puffed out his cheeks. This one, yes, contains a list of all the water wells in the Zagros district of Babylon. Opening one script after another, he reported their contents. Uh, these are the details of property transactions. This is a list of herbs, and this one's from someone complaining about the poor grade of copper he's been sent. He tossed them on the floor. This isn't sacred knowledge, Shamira said with a dismissive wave of her hand. And even if it was, it'll never be as precious as a human being. Clear out this chamber, quickly. She erected some privacy screens for Akasha while Philo and Tross emptied the chamber of cylinders and were soon removing the last shelving. Suddenly the chamber echoed with a sound of querulous voices from the top of the steps. Reluctantly, Shamira left Akasha alone and went to investigate. It's not your fault, she heard Tross blurt out. It's not, it was broken, Philo replied, hands on his head in desperation. What's the matter now, she said. The seal around the trap door is damaged, Tross said, pointing to a frayed edging around the wooden shutter. That was ominous. For them to stay safe and dry in, in the chamber, the seal on the trap door had to be watertight. Everything else had gone wrong, so perhaps this wasn't a surprise. Can it be repaired, she asked, more in hope than desperation. Yes and no, Philo said, with typical Babylonian ambivalence. She glared at him until he explained. The trap door was designed so that when it was shut from beneath, the upper seal closed itself automatically. One of the shells fell and broke the edge of the seal, Tross said, his face gnarled with trauma. I killed my own daughter to save the human race from the blight of the hybrid seed, and I won't let her death be in vain. 
What can be done, Shemira asked. The seal can be made good, but, Philo said, his voice trembling, only if someone stays up here to close the trap door. I'll stay up here. Tell me what to do, she said, without a moment's hesitation. What was her life worth against the continuance of the human race? Everyone was expendable, except Akasha. No, Tross said, Akasha needs you more than she needs me. I'll do it. The look in his eye was intense. He meant what he said. All right, she said softly. Courage called for acquiescence. In a flash, Pazazu, the winged monster, appeared above them, a viper dancing in the air. A horde of hybrids lurched around the corner, wielding torches and clubs, dripping venom. As Philo glanced at them and hesitated, Tross pushed him down the steps and slammed the trapdoor shut. Shimura and Philo tumbled to the bottom of the stairs. When Philo made to go back to help Tross, Shimura shook her head. He's made his decision, she said, and mouthed a prayer of thanksgiving to a brave man. Akasha called out from the chamber. What is it, Shimura answered. My waters have broken. Right, now we're something completely different. This is set in, um, well, you'll find out when. Um, it does tell you. Um, the opening sort of gambit is a, an ancient Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. And if you want to know the meaning of the curse, read the novel. Nanjing, China. In the Chinese year of the goat, January 1368. I, Zhu Wangjiang, have expelled the Mongol invader. For 97 summers we have suffered at the hands of the barbarian. I will restore the greatness of China, both in heaven and earth. While my followers exhorted me to grasp the mandate of heaven, I dared not do so without a propitious sign. Five days ago, on a cold, snowy day, I erected an altar of worship to the supreme cosmic deity. I prayed that if the Lord on high approved of my new ruling house, then, the 23rd of January, 1368, the appointed day of my enthronement, that day would be a bright day. Today is that day, and miracle of miracles, the warm rays of the sun pierce the gloom and have melted the frozen earth. The Lord on high has heard my supplication. The yang exerts itself upon the yin. The order of the tower is restored. I take my seat on the dragon throne. As a bright day in heaven means a bright day on earth, I name this the Ming, meaning bright dynasty. Zhu Wangzhang, the Hongwu Emperor. This is an extract from the Great Ming Code. This is chapter one, Yin Yang Eyes. And it's set in Shanghai Wan, which is the eastern end of the Great Wall of China, in the second year of the reign of the Jianwan Emperor, and the penultimate day of the year of the rabbit, also known as the 1st of February, 1400. Bolin swooned, grabbed the air and found cold metal railings. He shook his head. Perhaps that would rid him of the shooting pains between his temples. His vision was as blurred as the mist that rolled off the sea. You all right? Curie asked, as a smile broke his friend's craggy features. I, I think so, Bolin stammered. While Kui was sympathetic, his new superior was not. 
Do you want to fail on your first day at work, Wen snapped at him. No, no, of course not, Master Wen, he stammered, rubbing his temples. Behind them, one of the donkeys brayed and let out a huge fart, bringing smirks to the lips of the assembled apprentices, except Bolin. This headache was more than a pain. Good, then I'll begin, Wen said. This is the most eastern end of the Great Wall of 10,000 Lai, and this province, I, am its maintainer. The section in the neck of land between the mountains and the sea was built 20 years ago. Your task is to return it to its pristine condition. The Great Wall is not only made of stone and packed earth, and woe betide anyone I hear say so. Wen continued, it's host to a living, breathing entity, the old dragon. Lao Long. And we are standing on the old dragon's head, Lao Long Town. Below us, you can see this part of the wall protrudes into the waters like a small pier. The old dragon's taking a cooling drink, so mind you, pay him the respect he deserves. That was when the famous master builder. Folks said he breathed fire when he raised anger. Bolin wasn't sure whether they were referring to him or the Lao Long. Wen bent his neck and glowered at them through the top of his eyes, taking them one by one before he added, other than me and the Lao Long, this wall belongs to the military, the monks and the great wall players. For you conscripts, it will be the first time you've ever trodden its hallowed soil, so just do you mind if one of you is tempted to sneak your family up here for a quick view of the land of the barbarians, you will be hauled before the magistrate and placed in a kang. You wouldn't want to suffer that shame, would you? While the workers dutifully hung their heads, Bolin wished he could appreciate the great honour of his newfound position, but his headache was thumping like a gong in a Buddhist temple. Never before had he suffered like this. Was it too much yang or too little yin? Either way, he must have erred from the path of the Tao, the true way to heaven. He glanced at the donkey cart. Buckets carrying poles, wheelbarrows, rakes, spades, tempers, rammers, and all the bags of lime and sand and goods and muddy water all the paraphernalia of repair and construction. The donkey was ready, he was not. A clutch of guards was clearing the twigs and leaves scattered along the road that ran along the length and breadth of the Great Wall, while another group was furiously steeping away puddles of water deposited by the overnight storm. The other conscripts were gathering struts, bits of wood and vicarious belongings that lay strewn all over the wall over the road, rebuilding its makeshift huts in which the guards lived and sheltered. Bolin rubbed his hands to keep out the winter cold. The sea mist swirled across the fortress like huge curtains of moisture. The garrison commandment, c- commander eyed their group with an air of studied suspicion and asked, What brings you onto the road today, Master Wynne? Instructing these apprentices, Commandant Tungi replied with a curt bow, They've much to learn to be as dedicated as you, the Commandant suggested. Every day you inspect the wall and its fortifications. Thank you, Master Wen said, but we're only as strong as our defences against the Mongols. Ah, we're well rid of those barbarians, Tung said. We sent them back to the land of the Blue Wolf and that's where they can stay. I to that, Wen agreed. Today we can be good citizens by preparing the Great Wall for the New Year festivities. The year of the dragon, the Commandant suggested, will be a splendid year. It will be even better if this work is finished today, Wynne added sardonically. Turning to his apprentice, he said, Yesterday's tempest tore into the cladding of the wall. The problem is, the lights from tomorrow night's fireworks will sharp the tiniest crack and hole. 
I want the blemishes smoothed, the crevices filled, the lashing and the moss removed. Everything must be as auspicious as possible. With the stronger yang and the weaker yin in their rightful places, if you'll excuse us. When and Tung set off at a pace, Bolin hurried at a respectful distance behind them, his feet slipping and sliding on the cold, moist stone. Curiously, as he left the Laolong Tao and ventured onto the main land-based pass of the wall, his headache lifted. He could revel in the experience of viewing the sheer scale of the fortifications. From the vantage point of the road, he could see the pale winter sun glistening in the cold grey waters of the moat surrounding the square fortress. Next to that, the huge walls as high as trees and thicker than ten men standing side by side, as well as a frightening series of watchtowers, ramps and gates, protected the army and citizens of the fortress city of Shanghai Wan. Literally, mountain, sea, pass. Rows of billets housed thousands of soldiers and enormous warehouses stocked supplies of food and armaments with which to send them to war. Fine stables for the cavalry's horses sat next to the more rudimentary housings for the hundreds of oxen, donkeys and mules yoked to the supply wagons. A guard on the battlements of the east gate interrupted his awe and admiration. Hi! Hi! His cry resounded along the wall. He was pointing across the plain from where a rider raced down the coast road towards them. Bolin watched the horseman pull up on the edge of the moat, his horse panting as if chased by the hounds of hell. A small flag bearing the yellow-red emblem of the Prince of Yan protruded from his saddle. He's come from our fief lord. Lower the drawbridge, the commandant ordered. The soldiers clambered into the wheelhouse and slowly the huge wooden drawbridge creaked open. Bonin leant over the parapet to get a better view. The rider was soon over the drawbridge and through the outer gate. Everyone could hear the sound of the horse's hooves resounding through the arched tunnel that ran under the gate. Eventually he raced through the inner gate and leaping off the horse and with barely a break in his movement, the rider knelt down on one knee, bowed low before the commandant and handed him a scroll. A message from our prince, the commandant chimed, who passed through the garrison with 15,000 victorious troops tomorrow. A loud cheer went up. That was a large army, and Bolin had witnessed many troop movements in and out the fortress since the death two years ago of the Hongwu Emperor. Founder of the Ming Dynasty, Zhu Wanzhang, had bequeathed his throne to his grandson, the giant one emperor. Soon after his enthronement, the new emperor's uncle, the prince of Yan, had rebelled, precipitating a bitter war of succession. Poland was surprised to hear of the prince's manoeuvre. Up to now, the battles between the prince and his nephew had taken place on Chinese soil. So why was he picking another fight with the Mongols? Kiwi would know. The old soldier grunted, with a civil war in full flow, the Mongols eye an opportunity to invade our borders and reinstate their reign of terror. The rumour is the emperor himself has urged them to harass our northern frontier against our own prince. Think about it. We've recently removed the barbarians and our noble emperor is making them an ally. Thankfully, our fief lord was having none of it, so he took an army up there to deal them a killer blow. It sounds like he's succeeded. Curry said through gritted teeth, or what was left of them. Master Wen added his own brand of chastisement to the mix. With the prince arriving, 
There's another reason to make the wall look its finest. I want teams of eight, each working on adjoining segments. Jump to it. No slacking, you hear? Cooey was in charge of Bolin's group, which was stationed in the shadows of the Yangshan Mountains. They spent the rest of the day clearing debris from the wall road and cleaning its vertical surfaces. He and Cooey descended on rickety bamboo ladders. Hanging at precarious angles, they shoveled a lime mix into every hole and fissure they could find. Holes restricted the flow of energy, or chi as Wen called it, through the wall, and that was inauspicious. By the time they'd finished, the cold wings of dusk were drawing in, and they made their way back towards the east gate. That was when it happened. Boland stopped in his tracks. In his mind's eye, he saw vivid pictures of the wall under construction some 20 years before. Bamboo scaffolding reached from the earth to the great height of the wall road, entwined with the turrets like lovers. Men swarmed like ants over every part of it, lifting buckets, hauling tools, carrying hods of earth. A cry of anguish filled the air. In his dream vision, Bowen saw a man slip and fall over the edge of the wall. Hands outstretched, he plummeted through the air, pregnant with his imminent death. As he thumped into the cold, unforgiving earth, his head twisted round and faced the wrong way. A stone's throw away, a little boy stood watching with eyes of terror. Bolin screamed, What's the matter? Kiri asked. It happened, he said frantically. Here, a man fell from the wall and died on this spot. I know it, I saw it a moment ago. Saw what? How? I saw it with, Bolin said, he was about to say my own eyes, but it wasn't with normal vision. With what? Kiri plunged in. To see into the spirit worlds, you gaze into a yin-yang mirror. If not, you've got yin-yang eyes. Seers, clairvoyants, astrologers, geomancers, they can see demons and ghosts with their inner eye, but you? That's a surprise, he guffawed. Did he have yin-yang eyes then? Luli had them. Dong had them. There is no way he, Bolin, could receive such a rare gift from heaven. That was an aberration. Surely this would only happen once, and he not repeat the visionary experience. A surprise as much to me as it is to you, Bolin admitted. I'm right, though. Long time. Blood was shed here. He peered over the edge of the battlements to the ground below, where there was now a crowded market. Many workers lost their lives building the wall, Curry added with an air of sympathy. So it was true, he exclaimed. Should he feel relieved at the vision he'd seen had actually happened? He wasn't so sure. As he walked home in the evening shadows, past the bell and drum tower, avoiding the drunks outside the white mulberry inn, through the west gate and back home, he couldn't shake the image of a man's head twisted back on itself and a look of horror on a little boy's face. Out of all the thousands of deaths on the wall, why had he seen this poignant, tragic one? Who was the man and who was the little boy? The answer was close by, much closer than you could ever have imagined. Thank you. The Bristol Confringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook, 
or follow us on Twitter at BrizconFringe.